You are listening to the Tractor Time Podcast. We are proud to be sponsored by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are real farming equipment for real farmers and homesteaders. BCS is often mistaken for just a rototiller, but with gear-driven transmissions and dozens of professional quality implements, they truly make superior pieces of farming equipment. Engineered and built in Italy, where small farms are way of life, BCS two-wheel tractors are built to standards of quality and durability expected of real agriculture equipment, the kind of dependability every farm needs. BCS America can supply tools you need to get jobs done across the farm and the homestead. Even on large farms where a four-wheel tractor is a necessity, BCS two-wheel tractors will tackle jobs that simply can't be done with larger machines. From mowing steep slopes and along pond banks, to working soil and high tunnels and hoop houses, check out bcsamerica.com to see the full lineup of tractors and attachments and watch videos of BCS in action. Again, thanks to BCS America for sponsoring today's episode. We are in a revolution, but it is a revolution in which the side that fires the first shot loses. We will not fire any shots because our weapon is uncommon good sense. Good day and welcome to the Tractor Time Podcast brought to you by Acres USA, the voice of eco-agriculture. I am your host, Ryan Slaybaugh, and as always, I want to say a thank you to our audience for listening and our sponsors, BCS America. They make this happen and allow us to get all these talented guests on our show. Uh, today's theme is all about happy pigs and profitable pig operation and uh, an interesting breed called guinea hogs that we'll get into a little bit. Uh, first, I've got somebody I want to introduce you to. Uh, it will be the new host of Tractor Time, which I'm proud to say is Ben Trollinger, the new editor at Acres USA. Uh, I'm not going to be going anywhere, but uh, and I will stay involved with the podcast, helping Ben uh, make it better and better. But uh, we're really excited, excited to have Ben, uh, a practicing journalist and an experienced journalist, to be leading this show. Um, ben, welcome to Tractor Time. Obviously, you just inherited the greatest magazine in the world. Now you're inheriting the greatest podcast in the world. I know the pressure's on. Your background is in journalism. How did you end up here? Well, it, it really is surreal to me. Uh, Acres USA is a publication that I subscribed to back in my 20s. Um, I'm 38 now, and it really meant a lot to me. I was going to the University of Texas at Austin, where Acres at the time was, was based, and the publication really just opened my eyes to a world that I was completely unfamiliar with. And that really has stayed with me throughout my entire career as a journalist. So before coming on board here at Acres, I was working at community newspapers in Texas, and then I moved to, up to Colorado about six years ago. And when I found that that job was open, I, I kind of had to pinch myself because it, it really felt like my life was coming full circle, that I was finally, you know, fulfilling that dream, that wish that I had back in my 20s that, boy, I wish I could work for Acres one day. And, you know, it's happening. So I'm, I'm kind of thrilled. But to sort of touch on my relationship to agriculture, I think it really started pretty early for me in sort of a strange way. I think for many people, uh, the relationship to agriculture obviously comes from their connection to food. And I think as a young kid, my connection was pretty disordered in a lot of ways. I mean, it really started at a 7-Eleven down the street from the elementary school uh, where my grandmother would pick me up every day. She'd take me there. We'd get Slurpees. We'd get Reese's Pieces. We'd get Mrs. Barrett's cinnamon rolls. We would just load up. Uh, and then we, you know, we'd go home and, you know, watch movies after movies after movies. And it was sort of just sheer enjoyment and pleasure for me. And 
but it was only years later that I really started to see that, you know, food wasn't just palliative. It wasn't just about pleasure. It was also about, about health and healing. And to me, that's really sort of the mission that I, that I'm sort of adopting and trying to champion here at Acres USA is that human health, ecological health really all ties back to what we're doing with the land, how we're farming, how we're ranching. And, you know, the Acres USA audience really knows that well. And I'm really humbled to get to be a part of the extremely wonderful work that they've been, you know, doing for decades and decades. Sure. So thanks for having me. Uh, thank you, Ben. Uh, as you can tell, uh, with the passion is there. Uh, we really hope that uh, you and our audience can uh, engage with Ben and really help take this podcast and our magazine to the next level. Um, ben will join us again in a bit before he interviews Kathy Payne, uh, our guest on this episode. Kathy is the author of Guinea Hogs, a new book out that is available in the Acres USA bookstore. Uh, but first... I recently took a trip to Rodale Institute in Pennsylvania and got a chance to tour their hog operation. We want to make sure this episode's all pig-themed, so I thought I'd share some audio I got from touring their operation and a little story with it. It's not more than five or six minutes, and then we'll get right into the interview with Ben and Kathy. So thanks again for listening. Okay, let me paint a picture. I'm standing outside of Cootstown, Pennsylvania in the rain. Uh, It's pouring hard. I'm with Jeff Moyer, the executive director of Rodale Institute, and Fred Walters, the former owner of Acres USA. We met out there for meetings, and while we were there, we paid a visit to the demonstration pig farm that the Rodale folks are operating. What got our attention is how practical, low energy, and manageable the operation is, and how healthy the pigs are. Uh, It's a proven diversification technique that pays for itself and helps farmers find other ways to market, and they're really just trying to figure out a way how can you teach other farmers about this. So I just want to plant the seed. It's out there. We're working on this. Uh, As Jeff says, Jeff Moore, the executive director, he says, they spend their energy managing the pasture not the pigs. So here's Jeff explaining why they designed it this way. And one note on the audio here, uh, you're going to hear a thumping sound in the background. Those are windshield wipers. Uh, As a reminder, it was pouring rain outside, and we were actually sitting in his car as we were looking at the pig operation through the windshield. Yeah, what we wanted to do was, we were looking at was at the explosion of pastured hog operations and if you look at a pastured hog operation, typical, if you sort of close your eyes and picture it, you've got these either A-frame or Quonset-shaped huts. They're in a field, they're in a woods. They've got some fence around them, and you've got pigs inside the fence, and they can go in the hut to get some sh- shade or protection from the weather. And then they've got a water bucket that sits there with a cement block in it. And then you come out and you pour water in there. And in the winter, there's ice in there, so you break the ice out, and then you carry some water out and pour it in there, and then the pig dumps it, and then you hit the pig on the head with a bucket, and then you go back in, and that's kind of watering pigs. And then you carry feed out there because pigs can't live on pasture alone. They're monogastric. They need something else that we feed them grain, so you got to carry grain. Well, somehow you have to pay for carrying water and carrying grain in the sale of that pork. There is nowhere in American society that you can say carrying water is worth $7 an hour or $8 an hour or $20 an hour. It just isn't, and you're not going to pay for that. But you have to in the pork in a pastured operation, so they struggle to make money. The other thing that happens is in a pastured operation, you have to move pigs, and you're trying to move them in this sort of big expanse, so you... You move, you'll put up a new fence and then you try to move the pigs from where they were to where you want them to go. Two things that happen, I always tell people, if, if, if a pig sees you move the fence, the pig says to itself, ah, the fence is movable. 
and if you can move it, I can move it. Now it's really hard to fence pigs. So they're always getting out. Feral pigs are getting in. It's, it's this nightmare. On the other hand, we have the confinement operations that are very efficient at moving feed, moving water, and moving pigs. And we said, I said, isn't there a way we could marry these two operations where we could create a building and a structure that operates as a gate to manage pigs. So if I want to move pigs from this pasture to this pasture, I'll show you how we do it. It is so simple. There's no stress. No stress on the farmer, no stress on the pig. No way the pig gets hurt, no way the farmer gets hurt. Simple. Very easy to do. All the watering stations are inside the facility. So the pigs drink their water in here. They have access to drinking water 24 hours a day. Same water we drink. Um, potable water. Easy peasy. No dirty, stinky water troughs to clean. Uh, and the feed comes in the, in the blower truck, comes into these hoppers and gets transferred with a flexible auger right into the building. Uh, an eight-year-old can, as long as you're tall enough to reach the electric switch, you can turn the feeders on, you can feed pigs. Now what we've done is we've taken all the work from raising pasture pork and put it into the pasture, not the pork. The pigs know how to raise themselves. We manage the pasture. So we're constantly planting and harvesting pasture because the pigs are the harvesters, we're the planters. The audio from our tour inside was a bit noisy, not from the pigs though. It was our own footsteps in the heavy rain outside that created quite a racket. The pigs actually were quite content laying around in the rain, uh, outside of the rain, excuse me. Uh, the fresh air was blowing through the, the pens and the Rodale staff just cleans those twice per year. It's quite phenomenal. Uh, augers deliver grain feed to the pigs inside and fresh hay is stacked around the pens. Um, water is readily available. A power screwdriver controls the windows and the sunshades. Uh, and again, no stink. Uh, the pigs could have gone outside. Uh, they had a beautiful biodiverse pasture with alfalfa and a mix of goodies for them to munch on. The Roydell staff doesn't allow them wallow deeply and really tear up the pasture. But other than that, they just run the electrical lines through the pasture's fence rows and train the piglets to fear the electrical line. And after that, the pigs and the hogs and the sows, they'll stay between the lines. They've had one pig escape in the last few years total. And then they just rotate them through the pastures. The facility, Jeff said, costs about 150 grand. It pays for itself. There's no smell. It's profitable. And they're happy, happy pigs. Uh, anyway, when the rain quieted down, we walked out to the pasture and Jeff explained uh, why all this works. We use perennial pasture because we make hay because we feed them grass year round. Um, but this site goes over to the trees there. It's about eight acres. When we first built it, people said the building's designed for us to run 100 pigs a year through here. Uh, so it's like a six sow operation, five or six sows, 100 pigs a year. Everybody said, that's not nearly enough land. It's like way too much. It's all in how we manage it. Again, we're using pigs to improve the health of the soil. They're just another crop. They come and they go, but they're just another crop in the rotation. The, as the, you, from yeah. the mechanical to the biological right. to... But here you the, can see the, they're pooping out in the pasture mm -hmm. here. That's what they do. We don't have to clean up the pasture. We try not to let them build too many wallows. No liquid slurry, no sluts. No, no, there's none of that. And will they graze all the way to the tree line? Well, we you, you can't see it here, right. but we... Uh, they've been grazing this. Mm -hmm. You can see how they have a fence up oh, there. Yeah. Uh, Shelby keeps moving the fence so they get okay. fresh grass yeah. all the okay. time. And then when this runs out, we'll move them over here, you know, and we create lane leaf. So that's it. Story about happy pigs, beautiful pasture, and a profitable operation. It's all possible. And we'll be working with Roydell to try to compile and bring this information to our audience uh, through this podcast, through our websites, through everything. Uh, it's just that valuable information. Uh, which brings us to the next part of the episode. More happy pigs, guinea hogs to be exact. Uh, ben, take it from here. Kathy Payne wrote the book on guinea hogs. 
literally no other book has focused exclusively on this heritage breed. No mere pig. The guinea hog has been known to make farm-to-table chefs salivate and grown men cry. In her new book, Saving the Guinea Hogs, The Recovery of an American Homestead Breed, she describes how the guinea hog almost died out in the 1990s and how a small group of determined people, including herself, are working to bring it back from the brink. Kathy is a retired elementary education teacher. She's also run an 11-acre farm in Georgia with her husband, John. Kathy, welcome. Thank you, Ben. I'm glad to be here. The guinea hog is this iconic breed that predates even the Civil War, but it almost went extinct um, in the 1990s. How did that happen, and what brought it back? Well, that's an interesting question. There were uh, three big factors in it nearing extinction. Um, one was consumer demand for fat, uh, probably four factors. One is a change in uh, the emphasis on breeds, and some of it was political, had to do with small farms, and then there was a pet pig craze. So I'll go into a little more detail about each of those. Mm -hmm. So around the 1970s, um, Earl Butts became Secretary of Agriculture under Nixon, and uh, he had a big push to uh, go from diversified farms um, basically small and moderate sized farms to more specialized um, monoculture big farms. And his motto was get big or get out. And so there was a lot of loss of the small farms. And also since the Civil War, there were improved breeds imported from Europe, many of them from England. And they were, um, while the Berkshire had been around for hundreds of years, um, it became a different hog altogether. So instead of being more of a lard type hog, big and fat, it became long and lean and muscular. And that was kind of the push. Um, along with the uh, monoculture production and the loss of the small farms, the big farms, they were growing things like corn, soy, you know, wheat. And, um, and then they were given subsidies to make that food cheap. So they had all this cheap food and not a lot of customers for it. So it was going to Russia, for example. And then um, it just got to be so much and the price was so cheap, they needed to do something with it to sell it. So it wasn't just sitting in silos. And so they started making things like um, soy uh, cheese and soy hot dogs and soy burgers. And they would make um, cereals out of it and extrusions and pet food. And so there was just this glut of this food and um, they had to sell that. And so they made products such as corn oil and Crisco and that replaced the need for lard in the food system. They also put out um, government pamphlets that really pushed 11 servings of grains a day which was something that our diets were just not accustomed to for centuries. Um, and then they, uh, there was this low fat craze. So people didn't want fat, they didn't want lard, and um, there was no money directed at small farms. So that, that certainly put a dent in things. So a small hog, the guinea hog, we haven't really introduced it yet, is a small hog. So it's about a third the size of a commercial hog. 
maybe even some of them are even smaller. Well, maybe we could start there. I mean, uh, sort of describe what makes the guinea hog such a special breed. Um, what it, you know, describe it for our listeners and also um, explain why it sort of fell out of favor. So those big um, breeds, the commercial ones that were uh, that came from Europe and China, um, they were standardized breeds. In a standard bride. Standardized breed is like a standardized dog. You've got beagles and you've got German shepherds and they're all distinct. Um, the guinea hogs are a distinct breed, but they are a land race breed as opposed to a standardized breed. And the land race breeds were developed via combination of natural selection, uh, which included natural pre pressures that were uh, involved with the locations where they were developed. And um, and so they were variable from farm to farm, and they weren't like entered into competitions and judged depend on how many of the breed characteristics they had. So they're a lot more variable. And they were, um, they lived in semi wild states on farms, either on pasture land or in the woods. And, um, and they pretty much foraged for themselves and they learned to uh, develop without the need for constant. Um, influx of grains into their diet. Uh, they had parasite resistance and so forth. So uh, the piney wood cattle, I was just talking to you about my lunch today. The piney wood cattle is one of those land race breeds and it was developed to live in the piney woods of the Southeast. The Gulf Coast native sheep were brought in from the Spaniards and then settled in the Gulf Coast areas where they would have normally just died from the worms and uh, hoof rot, but the ones that didn't die survived, and the ones that were good to help the ladies uh, make their clothes and do their spinning, they were selected for. And so um, these are all breeds that I'm familiar with. Um, so where am I going with it? So this is a land, land race breed like that. And so mm -hmm. it's a black pig. It's smaller than, um, than a commercial pig. And uh, because they did live around home sites, they are very gentle, very docile, very easy to manage. And the ones that I raised, um, I had taught a couple of them to sit on command before they were two months old. And um, they all knew their names. And if I wanted to move them from a pasture to a totally different part of the farm, I could just open a gate, call them, say, let's go and uh, move them to the next pasture. And they were just really, really nice pigs. <laughs> so, um, so that's a land race breed. Um, and then the black um, pigment helps them in the southern sunshine, the intensity, the heat. Um, pigs are uh, prone sometimes to cancer and so forth. And so that protected them and, um, and they were able to, uh, to be more durable. So that was one thing that led to their demise. Um, uh, the customer, the consumer demand I mentioned, and then the loss of the small farms. Mm -hmm. So as these um, big farms consolidated and their idea was to get big and get out, they started um, building confined animal feeding operations and they wanted bigger, wider, more, um, less uh, willing to forage hogs because they were kept inside. Mm -hmm. and, um, and 
their sole purpose was just to procreate and and eat and get fat and be slaughtered and they never left they never left an in, indoor environment. Well, it, se- it seems to me that guinea hogs are sort of a lens through which to view broader American agricultural policies that really affected genetic diversity and, and biodiversity on the Absolutely. American farm. Absolutely. Talk a little bit about that. Well, they're an exclusive American pig. They don't exist anywhere else except for in the United States. And everybody that I talked to, if you could trace back their herd from where it actually came from, uh, traced it back to Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, Florida, Georgia, um, Alabama. I may be repeating states now, but um, so it was the southern. It was a southern hog, and um, and it was American hog, and so uh, that makes it pretty unique. And if you think about saving our cultural traditions, this is one of our cultural traditions. Um, It's a historic piece of Americana. In in, in your book, you collect so many stories from people who have this deep connection to this particular breed. There's kind of a nostalgia there. Talk Mm -hmm. about some of these encounters that you had and that that you tell about in your book. Well, um, gosh, there's so many. Um, one that I start off with in chapter one is a gentleman named Cohen Archer. And Cohen um, came to visit the farm. He called me one morning out of the blue. And, um, and we made an appointment. He came in and we were walking the pastures. And he was telling stories of how uh, his daddy raised the hogs when he was a boy and what he remembered about them. And he was just getting so excited with the hogs. And um, turned out he found me using Siri. Um, he just asked it to find somebody with guinea hogs. And then he told me that he had been looking for the guinea hogs ever since he was a little boy, but all of a sudden they were just gone. He couldn't find any. And so he told the phone to find some for him. He found me. And when I did the math, I realized that it had been 62 years since he'd seen a guinea hog. Mm. And he'd been wanting to see them since he he was 14 years old. So he found you. um, You you raised guinea hogs, and you've spent more than six years writing a book about them. Sort of describe how you first encountered them and how you came to start raising them and sort of become this authority on the subject. Well, that's... Um, that's an interesting journey. Uh, in 2013, I had a rabbit customer who had just picked up some guinea hogs, and I had heard of them, but I couldn't find much information about them. I kind of discounted them because my impression was that hogs wouldn't be suitable for um, an eight-acre farm, and I already had sheep on pasture. So um, I started looking into it a little bit more, and I found somebody uh, nearby and was able to meet some guinea hogs, and I was really fascinated. But there were not a lot of people um, with good websites or information. Uh, Even the Livestock Conservancy, they had more information than most people, but um, it wasn't, you know, really, really in-depth. And so... I wanted to read a book about guinea hogs and I couldn't find one. So I nominated myself to write the book. And this is before I even got my first hog. (laughs) So um, I got my first hog in September and I found emails where I started 
you know, asking people about the hogs in October, November of 2013. So I started, I just jumped in with both feet and asked questions and put it out there. I'm going to write a book. So people started showing up in my life. And um, somebody who had been breeding from the very beginning of the American Guinea Hog Association, which started in 2006, provided me with some information and some names. And I started, I made a list of all these names. And um, eventually I talked to everybody on the list just about, and also uh, found the mystery hogs that were listed there uh, that nobody seemed to have an answer for. So it was, it was a very interesting process. Well, let's go back to Cohen Archer, this man who you encountered, this who who yelled into his phone about wanting to find <laughs> wanting to find guinea hogs, and he found you. He came to your your farm, and and you two had a pretty emotional encounter. Yes, tell us a little bit about that. Well, he was getting excited about the hogs, and he remembered them from his childhood, and he kept telling me my daddy did this, and the pigs did that, and those are just like the ones I remember, and then he uh, he wanted to rub their bellies, and these hogs just came and laid down at his feet, so he's got his left hand on one little pig, and his right hand on another little pig, and they're grunting, and um, he's sighing, and, and um, it was just real emotional. I've just gotten to where I can tell the story without choking up myself every time. So <laughs> you're about to bring some tears to my eyes. But it was just very, very, very touching, especially when I figured out that it had been 62 years since he'd seen his last guinea hog. Now, I do have an update that's not in the book that um, because I tracked him down, I had lost track of him. He never came back. Uh, to the farm. He was going to bring his nephew. And it turns out that he purchased my very first guinea hog I ever bought was named Rhapsody in Blue. And I sold Rhapsody to a friend who, who wanted her. And um, she had to downsize her herd. And Cohen Archer found her and purchased Rhapsody, uh, who's a very prolific little hog. Um, and and I did, she's also the one, the first one that I taught to sit on command. She's still sitting on command. And he has a small herd of 35 guinea hogs. So uh, when I wrote the book, mm. I thought that he'd never seen guinea hogs again. And his nephew had never seen them and his kids. But now I've, everybody's seen the guinea hogs. So happy ending. Yeah, and I sent a him a copy of my book. <laughs> that's great. Talk a little bit about the importance of genetic diversity and how the guinea hog fits into that? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, I have a little talk. I might rustle a little paper here too, but I'm going to be giving a talk at an avid bookstore in Athens this week, and I'll be talking about that. Um, so when you think of a breed, you've got well, you've got breeds within a species. So species would be like dogs, and you've got your beagles and your German shepherds, etc. Um, and within each breed in a species, the whole species shares 50% of that genetic material. But the breeds, the other 50% is specific to a, to a breed. So if once a breed dies, um, 
that 50% of the genetic diversity in that breed disappears. Um, and if you think about like potato famines and over-relying on particular breeds, you know, the more you lose these individual breeds, the more the species is at risk. So, um, and the Livestock Conservancy, which monitors 180 or more breeds of poultry and livestock, they say that worldwide there's one species, one breed lost every month. And um, you've probably heard last month about the UN releasing uh, information about the loss of wild animals and plants. Well, they also released a report that was related to agriculture. And it said that 76% of the livestock breeds are currently at risk. And really only 7% are safe. Hmm. So it's it's pretty dire. And um, there's also a big problem with African swine flu in China right now, and they're losing thousands of pigs a day to it. Um, if that ever travels to the United States, say, through tainted meat on a cargo ship, uh, that disease could come here. And since these older landrace-type breeds have developed resistance and health, um, and have that in their genes that maybe other breeds do not, um, they could be the answer to uh, staving off the loss of the whole species. In, in the book, you use the phrase, eat them to save them. Yes. Um, and I'd, I'd, like, I'd like you to talk about some of the chefs who are creating a market for rare heritage breeds and, and through those efforts, saving, saving some of these, these lines. Right. Um, well, first of all, I want to define the eat them to save them because people think that's counterintuitive. Well, we shouldn't eat them if they're so rare. You know, <laughs> why do you want to eat a rare, rare animal? But if you think about it, one of the reasons that they, um, they almost went extinct that we mentioned was people not wanting to eat them because of the lard or because of the fear of the fat or just because they were a smaller pig. We did not mention the pet pig syndrome, but they were used to breed with uh, other hogs to make pet pigs. And so not having them be genetically consistent is also an, a way to lose them. Um, so let's get back to my train of thought. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what was the direct question there? Yeah, we can, we can edit that. And, oh, um, no, oh, the, but we were talking chef. about how um, chefs... Yeah. yeah, chefs and people in sort of the food world are, are creating a market for rare heritage breeds like the guinea hog. Right. Um, and you talk about some of those efforts that you mentioned in the book. Yeah. First of all, it's really important to eat them to save them because nobody's going to raise and put a lot of money into an animal if they don't have a market for them. So if your market is breeding stock, which was my primary market because my goal was to, to help preserve a breed and to move the best ones forward. You can't sell a breeding stock if it's mean, if it's defective, if it carries some kind of genetic trait that you don't want to move forward. So you have to have a market for the meat. So anybody who's selling breeding stock is also has to have a way to deal with the meat. 
So um, the first chef that kind of got on the map with guinea hog was named Craig Deal. So Craig Deal was working with Slow Foods International, and they were having an event in Charleston, and the founder of Slow Foods in Spain was coming over for a fundraiser. He was going to be in Atlanta, and then they took him into Charleston, and they decided to do a a pig tasting. So they had just introduced the guinea hog to the architaste, or they were considering it for the architaste. And so Craig took some small pigs and um, he got them from Graymore up in South Carolina and they, um, they evaluated the taste and the flavor and the qualities of the meat. And he was just blown away. Um, he was surprised about how fatty they were, but it's, this is a melt in your mouth kind of that and it's also the smaller parts make for a shorter work time for the chef as far as making charcuterie prosciutto and hams and those kind of things um, now locally here in Athens Georgia we have a restaurant called five and ten and it's owned by Hugh Atchison who was a top chef mm -hmm. um, judge and um, so Richard Neal uh, was the first one to buy guinea hogs from me. And they have a great little restaurant and a real cohesive staff. They keep, you know, they keep staff on forever. Of course, the chefs turn over because chefs are rock stars and they turn over. But sure. um, so when I invited them to come up for a chef tour a couple years ago, Richard came up and brought 14 staff members with them. This was on a day off. And this is what they chose to do on their day off. So I got a real heavy bonding with the group there. And then um, my husband and I like to patronize five and 10, especially when they're serving guinea hogs. So we would show up when it was on the menu and it was just fun. Um, and he did amazing things with them, pork, fried pork rinds and thin uh, shavings of, of ham, cured ham. And um, so they could take one little hog and serve it for as long as eight months. So just uh, last month, I had a dinner where I was served something that had little shavings of a guinea hog ham from a pig I'd sold them, I guess, uh, 11 months earlier. Um, mm. Because of the cure time and you know, once you have a ham, it's preserved. And um, so he worked with it. And then when he left, there was a chef named Telly. And uh, his moniker is It's Just Telly on Instagram because he's he's a rock star and he doesn't use a last name. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but he's right. up in New York. He just moved to New York about two weeks ago. Uh, but he loved the guinea hogs. And now um, I believe... Dana or Shana is the name of the new executive chef. She was the former sous chef. And so she's been working with the guinea hogs under Richard and under Telly. And I'm sure she'll move that forward. And I also made arrangements for another local farmer to provide guinea hogs to the restaurant so they can uh, still serve guinea hog on the menu. And the one thing they did was they would bill it as guinea hog. So it was a conversation starter between the servers and the customers. Um, they would post the name of the farm on the chalkboard when you first come in. And then um, people would say, well, what's guinea hog? 
and then they get the story. So it really helps to promote the breed. And what is it about guinea hogs that appeals so much to people in the food world? Um, is there a certain diet that they have? Is there a certain flavor? What, what, what is it that um, draws people in and starts that conversation that you mentioned? Well, diet definitely does impact the flavor and the characteristics of the meat. And um, whereas most breeds will eat gallons and gallons of commercial food every day and then sit, sit in the shade and, and sleep most of the day, the guinea hogs are foragers and they will go out and gather their own food. So they will eat grass. They graze just like hogs. They will eat uh, legumes. Uh, they'll eat the scraps, your potato peelings when you're fixing dinner. When you weed the garden, you can take the weeds to the hogs. They'll eat the sweet potato leaves when you harvest your sweet potatoes and pumpkins and so forth. So um, all of that definitely impacts the flavor of the meat. Um, in Spain, they have the little black of Iberico pigs who are finished on um, acorns. And mm -hmm. if you have woods and oak trees, the guinea hogs will be more than happy to clean that up for you. Windfall fruit from apples, etc. So uh, I think that really impacts the flavor. But even if you have different breeds of hogs raised side by side in a similar environment, the guinea hog still has a quality to the fat instead of being hard and gristly and chewy it's thick of butter you know how does butter melt in your mouth and it's it's that and um there's plenty of it and it's kind of a marbled red meat and it's it's not the other white meat for sure <laughs> i'm sure i'm sure our listeners are wondering what's the bacon like oh the bacon's amazing <laughs> the bacon's amazing yes yeah. Well, I'm also curious how guinea hogs fit into sort of a larger farm system. Um, I, I'm thinking of sort of leader and follower permaculture systems of, of grazing, uh, where you might have cattle going in first and then other kinds of animals following. Um, you know, how, how are farmers and ranchers using guinea hogs as part of an overall agricultural system? Well, they're great in um, what you call silva forest, maybe. They, mm -hmm. They're good in, um, in situations where you want something to clean up the brush or clean up the acorns or to clean up the windfall fruit and then follow them with poultry because the poultry love to pick through fecal matter and eat the fly larvae and so forth. And that helps keep the flies down. Um, they are good at tilling soil. If you want to have a garden spot next year and you want an area tilled, you put the, you know, you just move your electric fence around it. You let the pigs fertilize it, till it, and then you move them on. Uh, you can just broadcast seed behind them and it's already tilled and fertilized. You let the rain do the work and, um, and it just regenerates so quickly. Usually, an area, we would concentrate them in a small area and then move them frequently, like four days to two weeks, depending on the weather conditions. And um, in the south, where I live in northeast Georgia, it would regenerate within three weeks. It was just amazing at how the grass and everything would just come up. Um, 
So they're good for that. They're not good in a big agricultural system because they're not a production hog, but they're perfect for a homesteader or say, you know, 30 to 100 acre type operation. Do you see more and more um, homesteaders, farmers, uh, ranchers picking up the, the guinea hog as part of their overall efforts? Absolutely. Yes. And um, one thing they say, um, I was at the Mother Earth News Fair in Asheville um, back in April. And I was hanging out with the, the booth where they had some guinea hogs and they were giving out information from the American Guinea Hog Association. And so many people were saying, well, you know, that's the size of pig I could handle. So people that are just getting back to the land, have a small holding. They don't want a lot of pigs digging up the pasture and building big, huge mud wallows. Um, a smaller pig makes sense. And also if they're gonna butcher for their family on the farm, they don't want a really big hog. And they don't want a big mean boar that weighs 900 pounds around their kids, you know? <laughs> so right. these guys are just sweethearts. The amount of time you put into this book sort of reminds me of a detective trying to solve a murder mystery. Describe the process of writing this book. You, you really left no stone unturned. Well, that's true. Like I said, I, I had made my wish list, which I just found last week when I was tidying up after book publishing, where I had written down all these hogs I wanted to find and, and people I wanted to find. And uh, I was just amazed that I had written that in November of 2013. And it took me until a week before the book was actually released, March 15th. I think around March 5th, I was still interviewing people. Um, so I found out through the process of my research, first I just put it out there that I wanted to talk to old timers. And I found out that they used some very specific language. Um, there were big boned and little boned hogs, which means some were a larger a variety and some were a smaller variety, but that was their vernacular that people weren't using anymore. And so if anybody ever called me up and said, you know, uh, do you have big bone hogs or do you have little bone hogs? Then I knew that that was somebody I wanted to interview. Um, then uh, people would give me leads and, and give me name or a phone number or say, you should talk to so-and-so. So I'm, I did a lot of finding so-and-so, but I also had to do a lot of digging on Facebook and um, using a service that's actually used by uh, detectives and uh, where I was paying money to get phone numbers and mobile phone numbers and Facebook accounts. And so I was going down lots of rabbit holes. And uh, my friend Matthew Hunker helped me out. He found some people on Facebook and I started using Facebook more heavily. Um, and that's a really great, great way to find people. I tell you, it's amazing how many people are on Facebook. So, uh, so that's what I did and uh, one at a time and then following up leads. And one person would say, well, you know, call so-and-so and I'd call so-and-so. Um, then I found out that there was one person that a lot of people were talking about um, and there were 
breeders, of course, these hogs had never had an association, had never had anybody keeping a registry for hundreds of years. And then uh, in 2006, an association formed. Um, but not everybody who had been raising hogs for 10 or 20, or in one case, even 100 years, joined that association. Uh, so the hogs that were still alive in the, uh, at the turn of the century were not all admitted into the gene pool, but they did close the herd book, unfortunately. So there was, um, there was a huge pot of genetics that was missing. And we talked about biodiversity and how important that was. Um, so as I talked to people and contacted them and talked to them on the phone, I, I found some of these breeders. And um, also the Livestock Conservancy had one of the breeders call them and, and they said, do you know who this is? You know, we really don't know about the bloodlines. And it, it was one of the people who had the pigs that I had uh, put on my list back in 2013. And this was two years later. So things just kind of fell together. So there was an original group of people that found the hogs in 2004, 2005, and started the association in 2006. Then in 2015, I located these other herds that were available that had not been in the association. So I recruited three other women who were raising guinea hogs in between us. We, um, we managed to home these pigs and keep track of their genetics for two years on our own and work with the Guinea Hog Association to have them recognized as uh, being pure examples. They'd been isolated herds for all that time and they were known to the original founders. So they were accepted in 2017 and um, that was a happy ending. What was the most surprising thing that you uncovered in your journey? Well, I think just finding all that information and talking to most of the people that I needed to talk to was just, just amazing. Um, just the way it, it unfolded and the wonderful people that I ran into and just putting the pieces of the story together to make it really coherent. Are you optimistic about the future for heritage hogs? Um, I want to be. <laughs> I'm kind of an optimistic person at heart. You know, you hear these statistics and they're kind of scary. But I have a vision that for the guinea hogs that um, my granddaughter's grandchildren will be able to meet a guinea hog someday. And the same thing with other heritage breeds. Right now I'm doing um, a census with the Livestock Conservancy for the Large Black Hog Association. And they're another very rare hog. Um, and I think they're more rare than people thought they were before we started the census. So um, I really think that getting the word out is so important. Um, just making people aware and uh, and then working with the breed associations to promote the breed and to keep the historic quality because the thing that makes the guinea hog the guinea hog or the large black the large black is those characteristics that the local people developed years ago um, 
and that's worthy of preservation. If, if we wanted something flashy um, and novelty, you know, that's, that's what almost killed them. In the 1990s, pet pigs were extremely popular and people wanted tiny hogs that had novel colorations and so forth. And they crossbred them to make them cute, small, and flashy. And then there were no more guinea hogs left to cross with each other. Hmm. Well, what's next? It's my understanding that this is the first in a planned series for you. Yes, it is uh, the first. So I've really been debating with myself about what's next because I have so many uh, different stories I want to write. So I may do some children's books, some children's nonfiction books, um, because you got to start them young. And um, one title that I'll be working on will be uh, buying and selling homestead Let's see, A Homesteader's Guide to Buying and Selling Heritage Livestock, because I'm partial to heritage livestock in general, and their basic concepts, the things to look for in a breeder, and th even things to look for in a buyer, and how to market your hogs um, that go across different species. So I think that would be really helpful to people. Um, and then... Um, one specifically on the culinary attributes of the guinea hog, because I think that would be real popular, and I love to talk to chefs. So, um, and I've got more. <laughs> You've been a member of the Livestock Conservancy since 2010. Mm -hmm. um, why don't you give them a plug and tell us a little bit more about that group and what they're doing? They are really awesome. Um, I... I'm really close to several people on the group. Charlene Couch is um, supervising my work with the Large Black Hog Association. Um, Jeanette Berenger is just amazing. And she was the first person to give me any information on the Guinea Hog Association. When, they, when I was doing my research, they opened up their archives because they had been monitoring them since, I think, 19... 87 and so I got all of their material to help with the book um, but they're monitoring so many breeds and they deal with so many breed association they are just really first class um, and also Philip Sponenberg who wrote the foreword to my book he's a consultant with them and he's an expert on uh, color genetics and genetics in general and he's been a real inspiration in his book um, that he co-wrote with uh, Jeanette Berenger and Allison Martin, who's the executive director of the Livestock Conservancy Managing Breeds for a Secure Future, second edition, is just the guidestone to my book. Uh, and you'll see references to it woven throughout the book. And they all three gave permission for extensive quotes in the book, which is not typical. Um, but it was really crucial to just telling the story. Kathy, thank you so much for being with us. Well, you're welcome, and thank you for having me. Kathy Payne is the author of Saving the Guinea Hogs, the Recovery of an American Homestead Breed. Hey, it's Ben again. I just want to say thanks to Ryan for this opportunity, and also thanks to our listeners and our sponsor, BCS America. 
You can find this podcast at ecofarmingdaily.com, acresusa.com, or anywhere podcasts can be played. Thanks, and have a great week.